Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast, where I, Josh Baker, your guide through the spirit realm, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode is the Big 50. I don't usually like to get too serious on the podcast, but as you listeners know, I decided to finally, for the first time, sink my teeth into the Blade movies this past month. A new Blade movie was just announced. You're welcome, everybody. Big Disney must have listened to my gripes regarding Blade Trinity and are releasing this new one to get me back on Team Blade. They have my attention. Will Disney allow blood in their vampire movie? Moving on. This episode includes deadly chomps, sweaty death, and ghost killers. Follow me down into this crawl space where hopefully no alligators are present. Number 1, Jacob's Ladder, 1990, directed by Adrian Lin. A Vietnam veteran named Jacob starts seeing strange creatures and has a hard time distinguishing what's real and what's not. He had a young son named Gabe who died in an accident. Weird events occur. After escaping men sent to intimidate him from sticking his nose where it doesn't belong, Jake ends up in a hellish hospital where his chiropractor Louie saves him. Louie tells him people hanging on to life see demons who will turn into angels when they're ready to move on. A man tells Jake that the government used a hallucinogenic drug on Jake's platoon which made them kill each other. We see that Jake was stabbed by an ally. Jake goes back to the home he had with a wife and kids and follows Gabe upstairs. Jake is then shown dying in a tent in Vietnam. War is the killer. That's what I'm going with, at least. It could be the government, too. I tried to add as much meat in that summary as I could while making it cohesive. The most basic summary is a guy named Jacob comes to terms with dying. I think anyone interested in movies or horror has probably heard of Jacob's Ladder. I knew the name, but I never really knew what it was about until watching it. While watching it, you don't know what's real and what's not. Jake has one life with a girlfriend named Jessie that appears to take place after another life he had with a wife named Sarah. He had three kids with Sarah, two uggos, and a beautiful blonde boy named Gabe, who's obviously his favorite. Gabe was played by Macaulay Culkin. I don't think Mac really fit the role. He's not the most believable kid in this. Maybe he was perfect, though, considering he ends up being an angel. It would make sense for the angel character to stick out amongst the others. I guess, as an angel, Mac works. Tim Robbins plays Jake and gives a solid performance. 
I believe this was his big departure from comedy, which makes the performance even more impressive. Right before doing Jacob's Ladder, Robbins starred in a movie called Eric the Viking, which looks about as odd as you'd expect. John Cleese is in it, and it's directed by another Monty Python member, Terry Jones. Who doesn't want to see Tim Robbins and John Cleese play silly Vikings? The answer is Roger Ebert. He gave the movie a zero out of a possible four. Harsh. In Jacob's Ladder, Elizabeth Pena plays Jezzy, short for Jezebel, and she was great. Her name being Jezebel must have been an early hint that Jake was in some sort of hell. Interestingly enough, Louis Black plays a doctor, and I didn't even notice him. Other noticeable actors that make an appearance are Jason Alexander, Ving Rhames, and Danny Aiello. The most incredible thing to me is the fact that all of the special effects sequences in the movie were filmed in camera. None of the special effects were done in post-production. All of the weird demon-looking people, creatures, war scenes, explosions, gore, all of it was done practically, and all of it looks incredible. Soldiers with blown apart limbs and Jake taking a bayonet to the gut look especially great. One of my favorite shots of the demon characters is a brief glimpse you get of them as they drive away after almost running over Jake. They have the perfect level of creep factor. Jacob's Ladder was written by Bruce Joel Rubin. The entire story stemmed from a dream he had about being stuck in the subway. He and director Adrian Lin worked closely together to bring the nightmarish, paranoia-filled world of Jacob's Ladder to life. I don't know exactly what purgatory would look like, but the bleak, gritty environments Jake ends up in definitely makes sense. The movie is filled with great shots. One that I really liked was how Gabe's death was shown. We see him with a bike, then there's a shot of a car's tires screeching to a stop with the bike stuck under it. Mac just had to pick up those baseball cards in the middle of the street. They could be worth something someday. Another shot I liked a lot is of Jake as he collapses to the floor at a crowded house party. The house party being part of hell is interesting. Jacob's Ladder is a beautiful movie that showcases ugly things. At one point in the movie, Jake has a 106 degree fever, so Jesse rounds up a bunch of ice from the neighbors, and they all work together to get and keep Jake in an ice bath. This is the incorrect action to take. An ice bath will make a fever worse. It causes shivering, which will increase your internal temperature. If you want to use a bath to help break a fever, make sure you use lukewarm water instead. Jacob's Ladder is a slow burn detailing a man's journey as he comes to terms with his death. It's not a movie where Jacob sees spooky monsters every two seconds. If you like atmospheric movies with a pinch of horror, Jacob's Ladder is a movie for you. It's a very interesting take on hell and passing over into heaven. Number 2. The Lure Originally titled Sorky Dancing Goo, translated The Daughters of Dance Party. 2015, directed by Agnieszka Szmoczynska. Two mermaid sisters, Golden and Silver, hear a rock band on land. The mermaids accompany the band to a nightclub they regularly perform at and join the band as dancers and backup singers. Silver starts falling for the band's bassist, Mytek. The mermaids become stars and a new band, The Lure, is formed that they front. 
Mytek doesn't want to be with Silver since he only sees her as a fish. Golden eats a bar patron. Another sea creature named Triton warns Golden that if a mermaid falls in love with someone on land and that person marries someone else, the mermaid will turn into sea foam. Golden's murder is discovered, so the band throws the mermaids out after thinking they've killed them. The mermaids, still alive, eat some people and go back to the nightclub. Silver has her tail cut off, which is replaced with human legs. This causes her to lose her voice. Her and Mytek attempt to do it, but he gets blood on him from the surgery, which kills the mood. Mytek meets a human girl. They fall in love and get married. Silver has to eat Mytek before sunrise or she'll turn into sea foam. She can't do it, so she turns into foam. Golden rips out Mytek's throat with her teeth and goes back to the ocean. Golden and Silver are the killers. I'm not sure why the name was changed to The Lure in English. I mean, The Lure is a way cooler band name than The Daughters of Dance Party, so I guess it makes sense. It's also a way better name for a movie about murderous mermaids. The Lure is a beautiful fantasy film. Everything in it is vibrant and a delight for your eyeballs. It's one of the most aesthetically pleasing movies I've ever seen. The costume design is varied and extravagant. The different outfits the bands wear during their performances are simply amazing. One aspect of the movie I found particularly awesome is the mermaid tail design. These aren't your typical little mermaids. These mermaids feel real. They have big, thick, repulsive, well, repulsive to me as a human, tails. The mermaids actually look monstrous. Besides the tails, they also have demonic-looking sharp, long teeth and fingernails. The tails and teeth are prevalent in the movie, and there was never a moment where they didn't look amazing. The mermaid tails were over 6 feet long and weighed between 55 and 90 pounds. They look absolutely fantastic. The colorful sets, costumes, and mermaid designs come together to perfectly create the fairy tale world of the lure. You know what else helps with the fairy tale feel of the film? The amazing music throughout. The Lure is a musical. At times, characters randomly start singing, but a majority of the songs come from band performances, which are incredible. All of the music is great. It's got synth, horns, guitars, bass, drums, bangers throughout the entire movie. Unlike some other horror musical I saw recently about zombies and Christmas, there's a great song in the lure that becomes a hit that's all about everyone being sad. I do feel like I missed out on a lot of meaning the songs provided due to not knowing Polish. Some of the translations were a bit strange. The songs are accompanied by lots of dancing in different styles. The choreography and cinematography used to capture it is stellar. Shots are often long and full of movement. The acting is solid. Miholina Oszajska plays Golden or Złota in Polish, which translates to gold, which makes me continue to question the translation I had access to. She's definitely the standout actor. She's great as the brooding, lonely mermaid. Marta Mazurek plays Silver and is also good as the more naive sister. They both do an amazing job of making the mermaids always feel like a different species. 
Their mannerisms when showing their more animalistic signs are fantastic. Evan Peters makes an appearance. Okay, it's it's obviously not Evan Peters, but Evan Peters is all I could see when my tech was on screen. He's meh. There isn't a lot of gore in the lure, but what's shown is well done. The cut in half girl and mermaid during the lower half swap. The mermaids eating hearts. Golden biting off a guy's finger and Golden ripping out Mytek's throat all look awesome. Titan bites off a mouse's head, I think, which is too hard to make out to be disturbing. I would have liked a tiny bit more mermaid murder sprinkled throughout the movie, but it's not really necessary. Since there aren't a ton of kills, the ones we do get have a lot more weight to them. It really makes you cheer when Evan Peters, I mean Mytek, gets what's coming to him. You can't break a mermaid's heart than steal her song, jerk. If he would have waited for Silver to fully heal after the surgery, he wouldn't have to worry about blood from the healing wounds. Mytek is an idiot. He even passes on a chance to bang Silver in mermaid form. Mytek, everyone knows you have to bang a mermaid when given the chance just to be able to say you did. Sure, banging a mermaid's big, weird tail doesn't sound ideal, but the story. If any of you listeners ever get the chance to consensually bang a mer person, I expect you to accept that offer. One last thing I loved in the movie was the way the sound of waves and sea creatures was used whenever the mermaids talk to each other in their own language. It was a really neat idea to have them communicate using dolphin sounds and whatnot. The lure is a fantastic, horror fairy tale musical. I definitely recommend checking it out. The director Agnieszka Smokczynska stated, I'd like them, the viewers, to feel moved but above all feel that they've been transported to a different world and lived out a dream with all us along the way. I definitely got caught up in the fantasy world of the lure and hope you listeners will too. The lure isn't the first thing I've seen from Agnieszka Smokczynska. She also directed the Kindler and the Virgin segment in The Field Guide to Evil. Looks like she directed two episodes of a show called Warrior Nun that'll be on Netflix sooner or later. I'll definitely be checking that out. Number 3, Crawl, 2019, directed by Alexandre Aja. A swimmer named Haley drives into a hurricane to check on her dad. She finds him injured in the crawl space of their old house. She tries to get him out of the crawl space, but is attacked by an alligator. There are alligators everywhere. After many encounters with the alligators, Haley, her dad, and their dog Sugar make it to the roof of the house and are saved by a helicopter. Alligators are the killers. A dumb, R-rated movie where a girl is chased by alligators during a flood? That's all it took for me to go check out Crawl. Somehow I never caught a full trailer. I didn't know about the dad or hurricane. I didn't even know the movie was directed by Alexandre Aja until the movie started. I've enjoyed a couple of his movies. Sure, the ending of High Tension is some of the hottest garbage in existence, but the events leading up to the worst ending in cinema history are amazing. Piranha 3D is a great time. It's a good thing I didn't know Aja was the director beforehand, or I probably would have been even more disappointed. 
If you heard there was a movie about a bunch of big ol' alligators taking over Florida during a hurricane in which a girl has to escape said flooded alligator Florida, would you expect a thick layer of camp? I sure did. I thought this movie would be way more tongue-in-cheek, but overall, the movie keeps a serious tone. The events of Crawl are absolutely bonkers and unrealistic, but the tone is still a serious one. That's the biggest problem I had with the movie. I want cuckoo for Cocoa Puff shenanigans and humor galore in a movie overflowing with gators. Remember Effie from Skins? Her and Haley are one and the same. The actor's name is Kaya Scodelario, and she does alright. The dialogue in the movie is stinky. Does Scodelario act like someone that's been bitten multiple times by multiple alligators? Nah. But no one who's been munched on by alligators and lived seemed to be affected much by the bites in the movie. After the first couple of bites, it's really hard to use the blanket idea of adrenaline to patch up your suspension of disbelief. Crawl expects you, as a viewer, to completely shut off your brain. That's fine with me when a movie is good stupid fun. Crawl just doesn't have enough fun in it. Sure, there is a scene where an alligator steps on and crushes Haley's cell phone, which is one of the most absurd things I've ever seen, but we don't get enough of that kind of campy action. Almost everything regarding the alligators is wrong. Alligators can be super speedy on land, they can hear well on land and in water, and their bites? Well, their bites completely destroy whatever they chomp. They also just love to death roll. That's when they sink their teeth into something, then spin to win. I couldn't believe it when one of the gators had Haley's whole arm in its mouth and didn't start a rollin' to rip that limb messily off. For an R-rated movie about alligators, there isn't a lot of fun on-screen gore. I guess that's due to the more serious tone of Crawl. You do see some gnarly practical bite wounds, which probably don't really match up to actual gator bites, but hey, the gore that is shown looks good. I would have preferred some zany, silly attacks and more in-your-face gore. Five people are eaten by alligators. All the deaths are basically alligator bites victim, then pulls them under, making the kills pretty boring. There is one kill that's kind of an alley-oop where one jacked alligator flings a cop's weak, fleshy human body to another yoked alligator who latches onto the cop's head. That sounds awesome and campy, but it's nowhere as neat as you're picturing in your head. Sometimes the gators are crazy strong and can crash through stairs, and other times they're weaker because the plot demands it, like when they can't get through some pipes or out of an enclosed shower. Crawl does have good cinematography. There are a bunch of interesting shots, especially when it comes to Haley swimming in the alligator-infested water. I was happy to see the dog survive for once. Sugar is the character I cared about the most. Haley decides it's totally alright to FaceTime her sister while changing in a locker room. That's a big breach of your teammates' privacy, Haley. Who even FaceTimes ever? Has FaceTiming ever been believable in a movie? Crawl made me remember an anecdote from when I was at an orientation at an animal shelter. A friend of mine and myself were going to volunteer there, and my friend's cousin tagged along with no interest in actually volunteering. 
we had to fill out a form with some questions. One of the questions was if you were afraid of any animals. The cousin put alligators. The next question was if you were allergic to any animals. He responded with all animals except alligators. To this day, over a decade later, I find that hilarious. Crawl is a movie. I'm glad that studios are still greenlighting random R-rated horror movies like Crawl. I wish Crawl was a more entertaining movie, though. It's completely forgettable. If you're on a plane and Crawl is the free in-flight movie, sure, give it a watch. If you want a fun, over-the-top movie in which people are devoured after entering water, it's directed by Alexandre Aja. Check out Piranha 3D instead. Number 4, Killer Workout, originally titled Aerobicide, 1987, directed by David A. Pryor. A woman named Valerie is in a tanning bed when it catches fire. Five years later, someone starts murdering members of a gym run by a woman named Rhonda. The lead suspect is a meathead named Jimmy. A guy named Chuck tries to figure out who's doing the murders and confronts Jimmy. The detective on the case realizes Rhonda is the badly burned Valerie and pins the murders on her. While Rhonda's in custody, Jimmy murders Chuck. Rhonda's let free. Rhonda is confronted by Jimmy, who says he killed Chuck because he loves her and doesn't want her to be caught. Rhonda kills Jimmy and says it's self-defense. The detective takes Rhonda out to the country to kill her because the legal system failed, but Rhonda kills the detective instead. Rhonda continues running her gym. Rhonda and Jimmy are the killers. It's not called Valerie's Workout. Killer Workout has been on my watch list for quite some time. It was first brought to my attention by the Alamo Draft House as part of their Video Vortex series. I foolishly missed that showing. Red Letter Media also featured it on an episode of Best of the Worst. I knew I needed to check out this movie based on the amazing song Only You Tonight by Donna DeLore that was used during the trailer for Video Vortex. Not only was it used in that trailer, it's a prominent song in the movie. You want to know the secret to Killer Workout's success? Bangers. Killer Workout has one of the best 80s pop soundtracks of all time. Every song is extremely cheesy and catchy. Unfortunately, the soundtrack was never officially released. Why? I have no idea. Releasing the spectacular track seems like easy money to me. Here are some track names. Woman on Fire. Love is a four-letter word. Animal Workout. Rock and Rock. Aerobicide. The Perfect Body. Amazing, I know. Besides a slamming soundtrack, what else does Killer Workout have? How about minutes of ladies doing aerobics? I should have had a timer going whenever aerobics were showcased. I wouldn't be surprised if there are at least 10 full minutes. I'd probably even believe that 20 minutes of Killer Workout is just ladies gyrating and pretending to hump the ground in the pursuit of fitness. Sometimes while a dead body is being removed from the gym, can't stop sweating just because someone was murdered. You have the tunes, you have the spandex-clad arrow, babes, but do you have the kills? The kill department is where Killer Workout falls short. The main murder weapon is a giant safety pin. Well, 
more of a large safety pin. It's about eight inches long. We aren't talking about some ridiculously sized object. I wish we were because it would make a lot more sense if people were being murdered by a humorously large safety pin. It's really hard for me to believe that multiple people were bested by Rhonda as she poked at them with a safety pin. For one of the safety pin kills, she stabs a guy one time in the forehead with enough strength to pierce his brain. Rhonda does own a gym. I guess it makes sense that she's crazy jacked. She doesn't only use a safety pin, that's her go-to, but Rhonda also kills with a knife, dumbbell, and a rope. All the kills are lame though. None of the gore in Killer Workout is all that exciting. It's all very passable. The makeup for Rhonda's 70% burned body looks better than I thought it would, given the rest of the makeup and gore effects. After seeing her body, Rhonda has the following exchange with the detective. The detective, after saying Rhonda's the killer, states the following is part of the reason for her murderous tendencies. Knowing that any man would get sick if he tried to make love to you. Which she rightfully responds with, You bastard. Detective then retorts, Just doing my job. Being a huge asshole is part of being a cop, I suppose. The acting in the movie is all hammy, but it works given that Killer Workout is a TNA horror cash grab. The actor who played Chuck is Ted Pryor, the director David Pryor's brother. There are multiple shots where he looks like a jacked Christian Bale. It's uncanny. Killer Workout did not disappoint. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Should you check it out? I think so. It's stupid and entertaining. Should it have ended after Rhonda filled Jimmy with lead instead of moving on to a scene where the detective talks forever in a field before Rhonda smacks him in the face with a shovel? Yep, it's still a good time. David A. Pryor is known for making a bunch of schlock movies. One of Red Letter Media's favorite best of the worst movies was an action flick by Pryor called Deadly Prey, which Ted Pryor also stars in. I'll have to check out Pryor's first film, a horror movie called Sledgehammer, in which his brother Ted plays another character named Chuck sometime soon. I wonder if Peter Gabriel makes an appearance. Number 5, Dead Detectives, 2018, directed by Tony West. The ratings for a paranormal investigation show were declining, so the people involved, Lloyd, Sam, Javier, and Kate, have been staging fake hauntings. For their season finale, the crew is accompanied by Abril and a special effects artist named Bob, as they all go to a house in Mexico that actually ends up being haunted. Bob and Javier are killed by a murderous ghost man. Javier doesn't go into his light and becomes a ghost. Sam has created some devices that allows the living to see and talk to ghosts. The murderous ghost's wife and kids are also ghosts. Abril is double killed by the murderous ghost. Turns out ghosts can kill other ghosts. The murderous ghost's wife eventually kills him to free herself, her kids, and the ghost show crew. The ghost show now starts fighting real ghosts. The ghost father is the killer. Have you ever been 15 minutes into a movie and thought to yourself, I should turn this off and start watching something else that I know will be at least decent? That was exactly how my first 15 minutes of Dead Detectives went. Like a fool, 
I decided to truck on watching Dead Detectives. If you're like me, you're probably always on the lookout for a new fun horror comedy. Finding a fresh horror comedy you've never seen is one of the best feelings. I wanted to believe that Dead Detectives might get better, even though, in my heart, I knew that the movie would be mediocre at best. So now I'm here, talking to you about it. Dead Detectives is listed as a Shudder original, which really means someone made it and since no one else was biting, Shudder bought the distribution rights. Most of Shudder's originals and exclusives have been absolute garbage, but there have been some diamonds in the rough like Mayhem and Prevenge. One of the main reasons I decided to stick it out with Dead Detectives was David Newman. He plays Jimmy in a show that used to be amazing called You're the Worst. I recommend the first three seasons of that show. Now that I've seen Newman in You're the Worst, Detective Pikachu, and Dead Detectives, I realize he doesn't have any range. He is amazing as Jimmy though. In Dead Detectives, you just get muted Jimmy, which is nowhere near as fun. One of my biggest movie pet peeves is when Spanish-speaking characters deliver a bunch of out-of-place insults in Spanish. You know, puta, pendejo, what have you. It never sounds organic. Watch any actual Spanish media, and there's never a character that shoots off those insults every time they open their mouth. It's not a thing. Dead Detectives has two characters that make that their thing. It's awful. I was going to talk about something funny from the movie here, but I can't remember anything being all that funny. Marta Igareta from Culture Shock plays Abril. She's not really given anything to do. The special effects artist Bob decides to do one of the worst old fisherman accents I've ever heard. At least I think that's what the actor was going for. Bob. The guy in his 30s with the perfectly kept beard is supposed to be this creepy, old fisherman sounding guy. It doesn't work. The makeup for the ghost characters is mostly fine. The father ghost prosthetic mask looks terrible though. The gore? All that looks bad. The father ghost has a sickle and slices Javier's stomach open, but instead of intestines falling out, what looks like a pad with some intestines glued to it is used. It's very static. There's a really long scene where Kate talks to the ghost kids and has to have ghost Javier translate for her, which makes it drag and drag. Okay, Josh, say something positive. At one point in the movie, there is some fun gore that I forgot about. A big wig who makes the ghost show people take Bob along introduces Bob. Well, Bob comes into the office and makes it look like he rips open the big wig's chest with psychic powers. The best gore is the fake in movie universe gore. I don't know how that almost slipped my mind. It was Bob pretending to use psychic powers to open big wig's chest that kept me from turning off dead detectives. Hindsight, you know. Don't waste your time with dead detectives. It's mediocre. It's not even all that terrible. It's just bleh and a waste of time. Number 6, Kill List 2011, directed by Ben Wheatley. A hitman named Jay is having problems at home stemming from a job gone wrong in Kiev. 
At times, he loudly argues with his wife, Shell, and at other times, they get along and play with their son, Sam. Jay's partner, Gal, comes over for dinner with his new girlfriend, Fiona. Fiona carves a symbol on the back of Jay's mirror and steals a tissue with his blood on it. Jay and Gal take an assignment from a mysterious man who cuts Jay's hand and his own to seal the deal. Jay and Gal kill a priest who thanks Jay. Then they go to kill a librarian. Jay and Gal looked at what the librarian had locked away, which is some truly heinous videos. Jay tortures the librarian until he gives up the location of the video makers. The librarian then says he's glad to have met Jay and thanks him for killing him. Jay kills the people that make the videos and Gal finds a lot of money and pictures the people had of himself and Jay. They abandon the job. The mysterious man makes them continue by threatening them and their families. They go to kill an MP, witness a cult sacrifice a girl, start killing the cult members, and Gal is killed trying to escape. Jay goes to a cottage where Shell and Sam are. He goes outside after seeing torches and is knocked out. Shell fights off intruders. The cultists put a mask on Jay and have him fight a hunchback wearing a mask with a sheet covering their body. Jay kills the hunchback who turns out to be Shell with Sam on her back. Shell laughs as she dies and the cult puts a crown on Jay's head. Jay and Gal are the killers, I think. Sure, there is a ritual sacrifice of a girl, but she willingly hangs herself. And the cult only killed Gal after he and Jay start shooting at them. The cult also gave Jay a knife. They didn't make him stab his wife and kid to death. That summary was longer than the line for the hottest new ride at Six Flags on the first day of summer. I tried to keep it brief, but also leave in the hints that the cult was setting Jay up to be some kind of idol or champion figure. Without the hints and what have you, the ending would have come completely out of nowhere. I don't know how I feel about Kill List. That's a good place to start. Some elements are amazing. I found the three main actors, Neil Maskell, Mayanna Burring, and Michael Smiley, who play Jay, Shell, and Gal respectively, to give great performances. You really feel like the people they are portraying are who they are. The dialogue in this movie is completely organic. It's so organic that I had to put on subtitles to understand a lot of it. The English accents were a little too heavy for me to fully understand. I was catching about 60% of what was being said. Unless you're a Brit or constantly watch British media, I'd recommend subtitles. Kill List starts off as more of a family drama. You have a husband and wife trying to overcome their current contempt for each other. I find this to be a lot more interesting than what happens in the third act. I like the idea of a couple trying to make it while one makes money murdering people. The family drama is compelling. The gore in the movie ranges from terrible to intense. The first on-screen kill is Jay shooting the priest where we get a small CGI blood splatter that looks awful. After torturing the librarian, Jay bashes his head in with a hammer and it's disturbing, practical, and well executed. Gal is disemboweled and Jay ends up doing a bunch of stabbing and all of that looks alright. Throughout the kill list some jarring stock sound effects are used. I'd be entranced by the film then be taken right out of it by a stock sound effect I've heard a million times. 
The cult members were accompanied with distorted animal screams, which came off as cheesy. It almost works, but I could tell it was that classic distorted pig squealing people love to use for some reason. Pet warning, you see a dead dog and cat. You don't see them killed on screen. If you can handle the other violence in Kill List, you won't care about seeing these pet corpses. I wonder if Ari Aster saw this movie before making Hereditary. There is a cult that goes to extravagant lengths to turn someone into a figure they worship, and there are a bunch of naked old people. I haven't seen a lot of folk horror, and it sounds like these aspects are prevalent in a lot of those films. The inclusion of the cult in Kill List is the weakest part. I found the ending more humorous than disturbing. The movie ends with a shirtless, chubby-ish Jay being adorned with a straw crown that looks like a child's arts and crafts project. Was Shell part of the cult? She laughs after she realizes Jay is the one that stabbed her and their son to death. The scene before she is fused with her son to become the hunchback, Shell is shown taking out a bunch of cult members that are sieging the cottage she's in. If she was in on it, why would she kill them? If she wasn't, why would she laugh? Shock? I guess that tracks. But I think her wailing in despair would have added a much needed punch to the climax. The laughing and look on her face just kind of made me think she saw Jay killed her and her son and was like, oh you. Right after this, there's a brief freeze frame on Jay's face. At first I thought my stream was buffering, nope, just Frozen Jay, thinking to himself, gosh darn it, I killed my beautiful wife and loving son. Do I recommend Kill List? Yes? If you've already seen Hereditary, if not just watch Hereditary, I don't regret watching Kill List and think some of the movie is interesting. The cult aspect is silly due to how it was executed with the cheap looking masks and animal sounds. Just because the whole ritual is subtly foreshadowed doesn't make it any more interesting. If you think a movie about a hitman who ends up part of a cult's ritual sounds intriguing, check out Kill List. Number 7. Slasher Shows and Lords of Chaos if you're a fan of the podcast, you know that I'm a slasher genre fiend. Slashers are definitely one of my favorite genres of horror. You recommend a slasher to me, I'll watch it. You know what I like about slashers? They're mindless quick fun. Normally, we quickly meet our cast of wacky characters and people start dropping like flies in creative fashion. Your average slashers keeps the audience entertained by having about a kill every 15 minutes. Who thought it would be a good idea to turn slasher movies into full-on TV seasons? Recently, I started watching the first season of a show called Slasher and the third season of the Scream TV show on MTV, which is more of a reboot than a third season. Season 3 Scream has nothing to do with the first two seasons. I finished the first Scream season and liked it well enough because it had some fun characters and over-the-top gore, but didn't bother finishing the second because I lost interest. I've also lost interest in Slasher Season 1 and Scream Season 3. Why? Mainly because a Slasher premise should never be dragged out to be 5 plus hours. There's just... Not enough content for that kind of thing. 
unless the characters are crazy entertaining. That's the only reason another slasher genre show, Scream Queens, works so well. For the first season, when they actually had a budget at least, I talked about Scream Queens forever ago. You should definitely check out that series. All the characters, barring the main protagonist, are amazing. You could even spin it so that the main protagonist is actually Chanel, one of the funniest characters of any slasher-related media. I haven't seen Scream Queens in quite some time, but I can still remember all of the characters. The whole show is drowning in camp, which is another reason why it's amazing. Now, within the last month, I've been dabbling with those other slasher shows I mentioned, Slasher Season 1 and Scream Season 3. No characters in those series stand out. Scream Season 1 had a fun character named Jake that carried the show on his back. So, of course, he was killed off in the very beginning of Scream Season 2. If your slasher show isn't going to be filled with fun, zany characters and ridiculous over-the-top gore and humor, why even make it? I decided I was going to talk about the topic of slasher shows and how they normally don't work given their length, boring characters, and lack of self-awareness. And lo and behold, another one was just announced. James Wan is set to direct, and I know what you did last summer series, for Amazon. Oh joy, that doesn't sound completely banal at all. To anyone thinking about making a slasher TV show, remember, it needs to be fun and self-aware. I'll see how the new American Horror Story season ends up, since it's 80s slasher themed. I haven't watched that show since... I think it was called Freak Show, I didn't even finish that season. I'll give it one last chance even though I just complained about slasher TV shows because it's reuniting Emma Roberts and Billy Catherine Lord who are both in Scream Queens. Yes, I know that Kiki Palmer who's in Scream Season 3 was also in Scream Queens and to be fair, she's one of the better characters but she alone isn't enough to make Scream fun. I'm cautiously optimistic about American Horror Story Season 9. How it's made it to nine seasons is beyond me. Besides slasher shows, I wanted to briefly mention that I watched Lords of Chaos 2018, directed by Jonas Ockerland. A long time ago on the podcast, one of the seventh topics was the history of the Norwegian black metal band Mayhem. Lords of Chaos is a movie that tells that story. Even if you aren't a metal fan, I recommend it. It's an interesting look into another world. It's crazy that the events in the film actually happened. I don't know how genuinely the events are captured, but they happened. If you don't know the story, going in blind will be a trip. Check out Lords of Chaos. It's kind of a horror movie, and I probably could have used it as one of the big six, but I didn't really know what to expect. So now it lives here in Spooky Topic 7. It's not perfect. One big gripe is that it feels very American, but that didn't ruin it for me. The story is interesting, though embellished. Most of the performances are decent, even though lacking in any sort of Norwegian accent. And the gore is superb and disturbing. It drags during the last third of the movie, and there's a lot of tonal whiplash. I would have preferred a quick third act and for some of the aftermath of the events to be shown, but Lords of Chaos is still an entertaining look into a music genre most people have probably never heard of.
Blank is the killer, 50. Deadly Chomps, Sweaty Death, and Ghost Killers can now be laid to rest. 50 episodes. Whoa. That's a lot of episodes. If you dug the podcast, why not rate Blank is the Killer on iTunes or email me with anything you want at blankisthekiller at gmail.com. I'd be stoked to receive an email that tells me I'm wrong about a movie. Did I throw shade at one of your favorite movies? Hit me up and let me know why it's actually awesome. Maybe watch it before writing the email to make sure nostalgia isn't clouding your opinion. We've all thought something was awesome when we were younger, only to find out we were young, dumb, and stupid. I'm not saying you listeners were dumb and stupid, but I know I was. Am? Anyway, I'd love to hear from y'all. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to access your brains. I have an inkling that I'll be covering a new short from them on the podcast in the near future. Maybe on the next full moon. Blank is the Killer 51 will be out on August 11th. I'll try to get scary stories to tell in the dark on that one. I guess I should watch some alien-related horror too. Until then, if you're seeing spooky demons everywhere, make sure to find Macaulay Culkin and follow him wherever he leads you.